Father, I ask for your help one more time that the effect of these last few minutes together would be decisive in awakening a passion to so treasure Christ that we would be sustained in our sacrifices and sustained in our sufferings for the sake of love and for the sake of the nations. So beyond anything that I can achieve, would you come and work so that in a thousand years we would look back on this time together and mark it with epic-making joy that the cause of Christ felt the force of this generation. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today is the 200th anniversary of the arrival of Protestant missions in China. September 7, 1807, Robert Morrison put his foot on Chinese soil for the first time. He stayed there for 27 years. He had one furlough. He translated the Bible. He endured tremendous hardship. He lost his first wife there. And the effect of his life and the subsequent efforts in missions in China have been simply incalculable, as you, I'm sure, are very aware. And I just want to suggest that today, as one of the ways that you might mark this anniversary of September 7, 1807, 200 years later, is to go to chinasoul.org, all one word, S-O-U-L, chinasoul.org, and download free. I paid 40 bucks for these DVDs. So download free the four videos called The Cross, uh, Jesus Christ in China. The Cross, Jesus Christ in China. And what you will find If you watch these four hours of videos about the history of the church in China, is that the interviews with those who have spent years and years in jail, in prison, in suffering, is shot through with one main motif, joy. It is absolutely amazing to look into the faces of people who spent 27 years or 15 years or five years in prison, in hard labor, in isolation, and hear the way they talk about it. So I thought it would be fitting that in tribute to them and all those through history and around the world who have borne that kind of burden and done it with joy, we should talk today and celebrate today the function of joy in our suffering. Joy in the Bible is the means by which we are sustained in suffering, and joy is that for which suffering is preparing us. So let me begin by simply reading you a litany of verses, just ten verses, where joy is linked with suffering. And you you tune in to how it's linked. How does this work? In the Bible, what is the way God describes the connection between joy and suffering? So here they are. Romans 5.3 
More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 1 Peter 4, verse 13. Rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Acts 5:41. They went out from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 2 Corinthians 12.9 I will all the more gladly, gladly boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Philippians 2.17 Even if I am to be poured out as a libation upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Colossians 1.24 Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit. One more. 2 Corinthians 8.1 We want you to know, brethren, about the grace of God, which has been shown in the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality for the poor saints in Jerusalem. So you get the message. In the Bible, when God calls us to suffer and to sacrifice, he is not calling us away from joy, but into the deepest joy. So please don't leave this series of messages on the call to suffer thinking that I did anything other than pursue your joy. Is that clear? Say yes if that's clear. Okay, it's clear for some of you. I have come here for your maximum everlasting joy. That's why I'm calling you to suffer. So, what we need to do is examine how this works. How are we sustained by joy? How is suffering leading to joy, how does joy shape and give flavor to the suffering? That's our assignment today. God intends for joy to be so woven into the fabric of the suffering of your lives that it makes your suffering become bright and shining and striking in this world. So that the world looks at it and tastes something unique and sees something amazing. So, we go first to a word of Jesus. You listen carefully. You know these probably by heart. And here's what you should be listening for as I say these words. You should be listening 
for how salt and light and joy and suffering are related. Okay? Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For great is your reward in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its flavor, it's not good for anything. Be thrown out, trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel. They put it on a lampstand so that all may see it when they come into the house. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, what's the connection? What is your salt? What is your light? What makes your life salty? And what makes your life so bright with a kind of distinguishing brightness that when you do good deeds, you get no glory? God does. Most people who do good deeds get glory for good deeds. What would it be like to do a good deed and everybody praises God instead of you? How can that happen? It almost never happens. So here's my answer. My answer is that this is all one paragraph. This is, just true. This is not to be split up in little pieces dangling out there in the oral tradition somewhere. Blessed are you. When men persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Now, let that be real for a minute. Today, people say ugly, mean, false things about you. About the way you pray or about the way you witness or about the way you have devotions or about the way you go to Chicago or about the way you whatever. And their lies. And it hurts like crazy. Nobody likes to be criticized or insulted, especially falsely when there's no warrant for it. And the next words out of Jesus' mouth are rejoice. That's impossible. Nobody acts like that. That is so counterintuitive and so crazy and so different from the way the world responds to being insulted. It just might Taste like salt. It just might be the sweetest. It just might be what happens to a piece of corn on the cob, hot, with butter melting over it, and no salt. And then there's salt, and you say, that's good corn. <laughs> because that's what salt does. I know all the talk about we're preservatives in society, blah, blah, blah. But let's just, that's true, but this is also true, I believe. When you are insulted 
and the miracle of joy happens in your heart, you're unusual. The world has never seen anything like this. It cannot do it. You won't see it in politics this year. But if you do it, the world will awaken. Where is that joy coming from? It's clearly not coming from these circumstances here because everybody I know returns evil for evil. And these really weird Christians don't seem to do that. Contrary to all the right-wing Christian radio talk shows. We don't need any more of that. What we need is this miracle happening in Wheaton students' lives for the next 50 or 60 years in the suffering places of the world. And then, and then the world, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, secular Americans, Zoroastrians in Pakistan, might say, I've never tasted anything like that. I've never seen anything like that. And I think it is also the answer to the question, how do you do good deeds? Let your light so shine that men may see your good deeds and give glory to your father. Not you. That's really hard. What's the key? I think the key is when good deeds are done at great cost to you, and everybody expects a little bit of self-pity and an oh, poor me and a praise me. And and there's none of that there, but only joy that you can serve. They just might say it's from God. So my first observation here from Matthew five eleven to 16 is that when God calls you to suffer, he doesn't call you away from joy. He calls you to joy because joy is what sustains your suffering. It shapes your suffering, gives flavor to your suffering, gives brightness and striking unusualness to your suffering because you're not an oh, poor me. Come home from work, you know, as a hardworking pastor and you want your wife to... Oh, how was your day? It was so hard, I know. You just crave to be pitied. All men like moms. They want to marry moms. We want people to pity us. So grow up, guys. And, and women. This is human. It's just particularly annoying in men. Let's take this site of the function of joy in the midst of being insulted, producing a very unusually flavorful Christian whose life is bright. Let's take that and go to the book of Hebrews and watch it work. So this time, I've never asked you to open your Bibles yet. Don't know if Wheaton students bring Bibles to chapel, but... At this point, I'm going to invite you to, for the last 12 minutes, to open your Bible. So, to have a Bible, let's go to Hebrews together.
And if you don't, you can just listen carefully. That's okay. A few years ago, I don't know how many, I saw this sequence in Hebrews, and it absolutely blew me away. You know, most of us think of Hebrews as that's a book about Melchizedek, and nobody understands him anyway, and so the book is not much use. Whoa, what a mistake. What an unbelievable, incalculably horrible mistake. I mean, this book is so practical, so radical, so amazing that I want you to see that. And there are four passages of Scripture we're going to move through to our climax in a few minutes. So let's go to chapter 10 and read verses 32 to 34. Now, what we're doing here is we're asking, Lord, would you show us from your people in the Bible how joy works to sustain suffering and lead to more joy? Recall the former days. This is 1032. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Now stop there. Get the the setting. He's pointing back to the early days. They became Christians. That resulted in suffering. Evidently, some of them were put in prison. In those days, prisons weren't... They didn't have televisions. They didn't have cots. And probably, if you got food, it was because your relatives brought it to you. But if the relatives bring you food... They know you're connected. And if you're connected, you might get thrown in too. And so you can picture the crisis of the little group that has mom and dad or friends in prison. And we're not in prison and they need us. And should we go? Because if they take us, what about our kids? You get that from grandmama when you decide to go somewhere. And they decided to go. Didn't it, is that what it says? You, you were not only mistreated, but some of you were partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. Now, you, you had the little prayer meeting, and you said, shall we go or not go? Shall we take the risk and go in there and identify ourselves with them because they're in prison because they're Christians, and then we'll be Christians and something might happen to our stuff. And they said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abide still. We're going. And then look what happened. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So their houses were sacked. Graffiti, furniture thrown out into burned. I don't know what happened. Something happened to their property. They looked back over their shoulder and saw smoke coming out of their windows. And do you see what they did? Did you notice the word? They rejoiced. Would you? Somebody trashes your house. Christians, get out. 
No more Christians. Christians die. Would you? I'll read it again. This is not my words. I'm not making this up. These are real people. This really happened. Miracles happen. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How'd they do that? How are you going to do that this afternoon when something terrible happens? How can that be? Nobody naturally rejoices when their stuff is burned or trashed or thrown out. Graffiti written across the wall of your house. Get out of the neighborhood. Nobody rejoices. And here's here's the answer. Since this is the middle of verse 34, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Better possession and an abiding one. Better and abiding one. Those two words bring a psalm to my mind. Psalm 16, 11. You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are treasures forevermore. Full and forever. Full and forever. It's the only kind of joy I'm interested in. You offer me 88% proof joy. I say, no, thank you. 99, no. Full forever, period. I'm not interested in the other junk of this world. Satan entices us with joys that are so apparently great. And they can't compare to full and forever. So in these words, you had a better possession, full, and an abiding one forever. So they looked at their stuff and said, let it go. We got heaven coming. I heard people say from the time I was a Wheaton student till today that you can be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, hmm, these folks were earthly good because they were so heavenly minded. They believed in the shortness of life so intensely and the length of heaven so intensely and the infinite joys of heaven so intensely. It made the trashing of their houses feel nothing. And they could joy. That's the way it works. Look at chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. We're going all the way back to Moses now. Just want you to see the paradigm of, of how it works. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now watch this. Choosing rather to be mistreated. With the people of God than to enjoy the, mark this, fleeting pleasures of sin. Like only a lifetime. That's fleeting. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. He's one of those weird people. The reproach. This is insult. This is abuse. And he takes it and says, wealth. My wealth. 
He turns your head upside down. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. How so? For he was looking to the reward. This is exactly the same framework of thought driving his love to embrace the hardship to lead a people. In other words, when he was a Whedon student and he contemplated where to go with his life and what to do with his life, he thought he saw fleeting pleasures here and he saw reproach and hardship here and he embraced the hardship. Why? He looked to the reward. When, when God calls us to suffering, he's calling us to the deepest, longest experiences of joy. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, this is Jesus now, so be very reverent as you hear how Jesus was sustained in the garden and on the cross. Beware of making light of what sustained Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Life is a race. Life is a marathon. Don't think it's a stroll. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Here comes who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If somebody says to you, don't listen to Piper on this issue of, of joy motivation because he's a Christian hedonist and, and that is selfishness. Don't ever call Jesus selfish. It will get you in big trouble. Jesus was sustained on the cross for the joy that was set before him. And if Jesus was, I will be. Thank you very much. Right? I will not seek a motivation that is nobler and higher than my king. It's not selfish. Because it's God exalting and others including, others saving. He's saving people while he's being sustained by the hope of joy. The hope of joy is that he will be surrounded by millions and millions of people for whom he died among all the peoples. This is not selfishness. This is the pursuit of God-exalting, people-loving, sacrificing joy forever. And that's what will be the key in your life. If you love him that much, that you want to be with him forever and be sustained by that joy. One more text as we close. Chapter 13, verses, where shall we start? 12 to 14. This is the last one. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek a city that is... 
to come. Wheaton. You are here because God has revealed his glory in his word and in his world. Give yourselves with all your might to know him in his word and to know him in his world. That song that you sang for us, the whole universe, his, through him, for him. That's Colossians 1.16. All things, chemistry, philosophy, history, physical education, the Bible department, the music conservatory, all things are made through him and for him. Give yourself to know him in his word and in his world. Christian students should know the world better than anybody. And should know why the world exists, for whom the world exists. So give yourself to these studies. I stress that because I know that some of you are so chomping at the bit to go outside the camp and bear reproach for him. You just might bail on your education. When I was at Fuller, it was the hot, high days of black armbands and bare feet in classrooms and heading for the streets against Vietnam. And to be in seminary was a hard thing. And Jeffrey Bromley... Translated Kittle, church historian, stood up one day in chapel and preached a message from Luke. And the text was, and Jesus entered his ministry when he was about 30 years old. And he said to us, 25 year olds, 22 year olds. Stay here for a while and you might be more useful. So I do want to summon you outside the camp. I do want to say when you're done and you have given your whole soul and your whole might to your chemistry or your philosophy or your history or your music or your P.E. or your Bible or whatever your discipline is. When you have given your whole effort for Christ's sake in this place then dream a dream for how to go with Jesus outside the camp and through whatever hardships God appoints, make Him known. Make your life salty. Make your life bright. Be unusual. Don't fit into the American way. Be countercultural. They insult you. And because of the joy set before you, you rejoice, return good for evil, lay down your life. And it may be that the whole Muslim world would fall before you, not through bullets, but through sacrifice. We don't kill to extend our cause. We die to extend our cause by the thousands. And some are in this room. And I stand in awe of what God's going to do in your life. May it be so. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
I love these students. And I long for them not to waste their lives. I pray that you would give them the energy and the focus to do the work of these four or five years here. And then, full of truth about the world, full of truth about the Word, with Jesus Christ crucified, risen, at the center of their world and universe, may they go outside the camp bearing His reproach and tasting like the most attractive salt the world has ever tasted. Lord, I ask for a generation to make such a difference in the church, in the world, in America, in China, in North Korea, in Vietnam, in Cuba, in the whole 1040 window in the Muslim world, the Hindu world, the Buddhist world, the secular post-Christian European world, Lord, that the whole history would mark this generation. Lord, don't let these students dream too small. Guard them from pride, yes, but oh, may they dream of what you might be pleased to do if they are willing to suffer at your call, sustained by joy and leading to infinite and everlasting joy. I ask this for the glory of Christ and for their everlasting gladness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for having me come.